Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot. I'm Matt Risby, alright? And joining me as always, via the miracle of satellite technology, movies were his passion, women were his inspiration, and Gora sweaters were his weakness. It's Ed Davis. How the devil are you, sir? I'm good, thank you. And that, I'm going to say fairly easy to guess tagline is from Ed Wood, aka the last good Tim Burton movie. Mm, Yeah, he is someone who went off the rails quite considerably and it was something that we've talked about recently um, and talked about many times that he is now someone we realise is way more shit than he is good. Yeah, the scales I think have definitely tipped against him after kind of an early burst of, of greatness, you know, going from, I mean, his two his, his early short films, which are really, really interesting, Pee-wee's Big Adventure, which is like a delightful movie, Batman... Edward, Edward Scissorhands, uh, you know, those are all really great. Mars Attacks was really fun. But, you know, everything since the mid to late 90s with kind of occasional sparks of creativity and things like Big Fish uh, has been uh, really dispiriting uh, to watch, uh, considering that I think for me and for I think for a lot of other kind of young budding cinephiles, he was he seemed to be a very exciting presence and kind of the clearest early example that you could point to as, as of uh, what an auteur was. Mm, yeah. And yeah, now, like we said uh, a couple of weeks ago, when we were talking about the, you know, bad films by good directors, he's now someone who is a recognizable brand rather than, mm. you know, an auteur. Yeah, absolutely. And he's also similar to M. Night Shyamalan, someone whose name, when it crops up in a film, leaves you feeling trepidatious rather than excited. Uh, so mm. it's not even a particularly good brand. Yeah, it's the bold washing powder of directors. <laughs> um, once great, once endorsed by Danny Baker. But, you know, now not so much. I have a bit of news this week. We've got uh, for fans of Japanese animation and, you know, why wouldn't you be? Hayao Miyazaki seems to be coming out of retirement for one last job. Yeah, which is very very exciting because, uh, but because obviously he's a great filmmaker and he's kind of got a more or less unbroken string of good to great movies. You know how great they are varies from from person to person, but he's kind of one of the great artists of the last thirty forty years or so. But also a very unsurprising uh, turn of events because this was his third retirement in since uh, since nineteen ninety seven when he. He said he was going to retire after Princess Mononoke and then he made Spirited Away and said he was going to retire and then he did Ponyo. Uh, no, then he did Howl's Moving Castle and Ponyo. So like he said, he said he's played that he's he's done this dance a few times. Uh, and mm. so it's hardly surprising that he's going to kind of come around for another uh, another go around. But, you know, just the fact that it just because it's not surprising uh, doesn't mean that it's not hugely exciting. And whilst it is hugely exciting, what does it say about the state of Studio Ghibli? Because uh, are they someone, it would be fair to say, who, much like Manchester United, uh, <laughs> are struggling in the shadow of Miyazaki? Uh, I, th- I think it's kind of hard to say because so few of their films have been released since his retirement. Mm. Uh, but But there have been kind of 
talks of them stopping production, but then they co-produced a movie, I think The Red Turtle, with a French studio, and then they've also done their first TV series, or at least their first TV series in quite a long time. So they've kind of kept trundling along. So I think uh, they're probably going to be okay if they can kind of figure out how they're going to to make it all work. But clearly he is the marquee name. You know, he's the guy who pretty much built the studio. He's the one who has kind of the international reputation, who has the masterpieces under his belt. Mm. So it's hardly surprising that they would they would want him to kind of come back. Or, or you know, it's hardly surprising that he would decide to kind of come back because he had an idea he wanted to work on. Mm, yeah, so we kind of await that with uh, uh, excitement. Um, and we will have to wait because it's an animated film. They can't just bang them out overnight. Um, so, yeah, we'll, we'll kind of keep an eye on how that one uh, develops. Um, Amelia Clark otherwise known as Daenerys Targaryen from a popular television show uh, Game of Thrones, I believe it's called, um, is joining the cast. I've heard of that. Yeah, we, yeah, we all have. Um, you know, you're not special ed. Um, <laughs> she is joining the Han Solo movie, the as-yet-untitled Han Solo uh, origin story, I guess, which is kind of cool. She's uh, a lot of fun to watch. But she's also would you would it be fair to say that Disney are doubling down on uh, kind of geek credo? I guess it seems to be that way. I mean, I don't know how commercially smart that idea is, considering the last movie to do that was Terminator Salvation, no mm. Terminator Genesis. So uh, it's not like she's guaranteed bank, but mm. uh, I think it it's uh, certainly is good for getting headlines and obviously any news about a Han Solo solo movie is going to get a lot of attention it's going to be very good for SEO and whatnot but uh, saying that the kind of the biggest star from one of the biggest TV shows in recent memory is going to be in your movie uh, is going to get you some pretty nice headlines so it's it's smart choice but also like she's a talented actress so uh, it's hardly surprising that they would go for that. Hmm. Any idea who she might be playing? Kind of. There's not much female representation, is there, in the original Star Wars trilogy? So there's not much of a uh, chance that she'll be playing a young version of one of the existing characters. Yeah, I mean, isn't it the case that in the original Star Wars, or at least in the original trilogy, if you kind of add up the minutes of screen time of female characters talking who aren't Leia, it's literally like two minutes. Hmm. I can't. I'm trying to think of who else. I mean, there's Aunt Beru. Aunt Beru um, dies in, fairly quickly. Yeah. Um, Mon Mothma. Um, yeah. And I think there's already... like, there is like a, a female comms officer in Empire who yeah. says like two words and that's literally it. Um, yeah, I think, her, I'm not going to say I think because her name is Robin Tarr. Uh, mm. I know that much. Yeah. Um, she's in the same scene as uh, John Ratzenberger. Yes. Cliff from Cheers. Uh, and every <laughs> Pixar film. Um, oh, that reminds me, actually. I rewatched Cars the other day, and I remember that film oh, yeah. being just kind of average, like a Pixar film that was not one of their best, um, but by no means Cars 2. But rewatching Cars, that film's really bad. Yeah, I haven't seen it since the cinema, uh, and I don't want to have my pleasant memories of its mediocrity spoiled. Mm, I watched it, and like I found the film incredibly strange, very kind of unusual in, in that like there was a point at which 
uh, a kind of romantic storyline started to be kind of like tentatively worked up between two cars, mm-hmm. which, I mean, you'd accept it between like, you know, two dinosaurs or two foxes or something, but two cars seemed a little odd. Um, mm-hmm. But then I started to get, I got, I started to get really bored by the film because the middle section is incredibly boring because the story is uh, Owen Wilson paves a road for an hour, <laughs> basically, and then everyone in the town thanks him for changing their lives, even though he does actually nothing to do so. But uh, I started getting really hung up on like really tiny details and really like kind of strange kind of world details. Like uh, there's at one point a close up of the boot of the, one of the cars and it's got a keyhole in it. Mm. And I was like, why does it have a keyhole? Who yeah. is, who has a key to this car? And there's a bit where George Carlin's character is listening to Jimi Hendrix and openly states he's listening to Jimi Hendrix, but they live in a world without humans. So is he a car or have they killed all the humans? <laughs> I don't understand. It's have they up, killed dude. all the humans like, and are they really big fans of their music? <laughs> Yeah, and then when you start to realise that like Larry the Cable Guy is one of the voices in a kid's film and the character he plays, the only characteristic is that he's a fucking idiot. <laughs> he doesn't actually do anything in the in the film worthwhile uh, or teach any of the characters anything or just exist for any reason other than to being a fucking idiot for comic relief purposes. Anyway, fuck me. That's cars. That's way more conversation. Like uh, <laughs> conversation uh, time. I should be giving to cars. Where were we in the news? So yeah, who could well uh, she be playing? Um, I think like uh, she's Han Solo's married in the comic, mm-hmm. but his that wife is not a Caucasian female. So I imagine the girl from Creed, who has been Tessa Thompson, I think her name yeah. is. And she's also in Dear White People, uh, which is uh, an alright film. Everyone should check that out. Uh, I think she'll be playing that part. You'd imagine, but yeah, um, I hope. I hope we, we. I said this a few weeks ago, didn't I? With, with when we talked about this very same film, that the problem I've got with these Star Wars spin-offs, even though I love Star Wars, is that there's no nothing new at the minute. It just seems to be just you know slight variations on old themes. So to have a, like a new exciting character who might add something would be good. So and to give her something to work with. Yeah, I mean, my my personal theory is that it's going to turn out that Han Solo has many wives spread across the galaxy and the whole movie is going to be like a big love style drama where two of his wives meet and he's kind of thrust into this situation in which he has to try and figure out how to navigate it all. Uh, and that, in turn, leads to him making the castle run in 12 parsecs. Mm, yeah, yeah. And like the whole thing could be a feature length version of like one of the episodes of Saved by the Bell where Zach Morris has got two <laughs> dates that he's trying to balance at one time. Um, but he won't be able to kind of cause a fourth wall breaking time out. He's got two heists on at the same time, each with one of his different wives on different sides of the solar system. Mm, and I think as a nod to Firefly, he should have a third wife and it's Christina Hendricks. That would be great. <laughs> that would be pretty that. cool. Yeah, I would. Maybe there should be a bit where they they're in the bar and he just runs into Mal Reynolds, <laughs> like like you know. uh, like in um, uh, Maverick when uh, Don uh, uh, not Don Danny Glover and Mel Gibson first run into each other and they kind of like pull down their masks and look at each other and a bit of the score from Lethal Weapon plays as if they're kind of like saying, "Hey, this this seems familiar." Mm. I mean, 
Maverick as well is like not Hot Shots Part Two, where mm-hmm. that exact joke is done in Hot in Hot Shots Part Two, where Charlie Sheen and Martin Sheen cross each other on a boat and tail up during Wall Street. Yeah, um, they're both doing their dueling monologues from Platoon and Apocalypse Now. Both films that, when they were being made, I don't think probably thought they would be parodied at any point. <laughs> like years later in Hot Shots Part Deux. But anyway, uh, we got there in the end. Last bit of news this week. Uh, I hear that the television show Westworld, uh, another home box office television show, is very popular. We stated yeah. a couple of weeks ago that neither of us had seen it. Um, but now you have seen one episode, and to coincide with that, they've renewed it for another season. It's almost as if they're waiting for your approval. Yeah, that was they wanted to finally see my tweet saying it's good. But yeah, no, I've, I, I started watching it because the pressure was just too much. People constantly talking about it, and also people constantly talking about it and the fear of having it spoiled. Uh mm which kind of creates a mounting pressure of like, this is something that in a different era, let's say the mid two thousands, I would have like got to it eventually. But now there's a very good chance that you'll just get it spoiled on the off chance. So I decided to take the plunge and start watching it. uh, And it's very, very good. And Mm. uh, has some, there's uh, in, in the first episode alone, there are some smart, clever choices uh some uh, i don't want to call them twists because that makes it sound like they're pulling the rug out from under you and things like that but there are some there are some choices that uh jonathan nolan as the the creator and also the director makes that uh, i was very impressed by and also impressed that no one had spoiled them uh which uh, i don't know if that's because people are being courteous or i've just been very good at avoiding spoilers out in the world but the um yeah, the the uh, choices he made I found to be very smart, very compelling, uh, and kind of did stuff with the original source material uh, that uh, I wasn't expecting, and which also leaves open the possibility for exploring the world of Westworld uh, in more detail, like the backstory behind it all, uh, and, and kind of really digging into the question of what sort of people would want to go to live out these kind of violent fantasies uh, uh, and things like that. So uh, I'm very excited to see where it goes, even though I am also unsure how it will sustain two seasons because it does feel like something that would work really well as an insanely expensive miniseries. Mm. Well, bear bear with me here, right? This this season's called Westworld uh-huh. and there are, other, there are other worlds to explore, right? Yep. Okay. Bear with me. Crossover potential, marketing like avenues galore. So you have Westworld this season. Mm-hmm. Next season's Az- Aztec World, then Industrial World, Medieval World. You got yourself a Westworld Crystal Maze crossover. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Nostalgia is big at the moment, um, and I hear that the they did a Crystal Maze like a couple of weeks ago for charity, and I hear it was very exciting. So you know, each week a team of like, you know, middle managers from like Swindon or something do a series <laughs> of ridiculous games where they go into a room and they have to like fight Ed Harris or something or like, you know, do a maze, Anthony Hopkins is in there. Um, and then if they don't do it, they get locked in the crystal, gives them and then Richard O'Brien puts them in a giant thing and they have to collect bits of tinfoil. Yeah, I mean, it worked before. Uh, and <laughs> uh, I think there would be 
something perversely wonderful about spending $200 million on a TV show where the prize is a, a caravan in Holiday and Allswater to uh, mm. steal a joke from an old Adam and Joe show <laughs> sketch. Um, but yeah, I think there's uh, yeah, there's potential there. Uh, and yeah, the uh, the possibilities are, uh, they're not endless, but there are certainly four other opportunities, four other <laughs> worlds they could explore. Yeah, yeah. There are four ends uh, to the possibilities of that. <laughs> there are four blind alleys we could chase that down. But yeah, it's interesting that I watched an old Crystal Maze the other day on like Challenge or whatever, like kind of cable show, kind of cable network carries that anymore. And what I didn't realise about the Crystal Maze is that none of the people in there knew each other. Oh, like, wow. Like they were just like six or eight randoms just pulled together from all across the country and obviously applied to be on the show. And then they'd nominated some mug as captain. And obviously, like, if someone gets locked in, they've got to make a decision about whether to go on without him. But, like, why would they keep him? I don't know if they're any good or not. They clearly got locked in. That's natural selection, surely. Yeah, and also you don't you can uh, have a justification for not giving them any of the uh, £120 that you end up managing to grab hold of in the, in the crystal at the end. Yeah. I saw a trailer for um, Chris Hardwick's got a new quiz show i think on 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 one of the american networks and it's like produced by lebron james and is it like a huge digital board and like you know there's balls dropping in and like the jackpot is like 14 million dollars or something stupid wow and then i think i think back to the crystal maze and bullseye where someone genuinely could go home with eight quid <laughs> you know what i mean and you know i think there's only like 25 years between these two things happening um which is you know Pretty amazing, but also just shows how low rent Britain is. <laughs> yeah. Or how how much we want to see people fail spectacularly. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. For literally no money. It's like watching people fight over like, you know, a dustbin that's on fire or something, which I would watch. <laughs> um given, you know, the right you give it some good music, you know, zhuzh it up with some uh, flashy graphics. <laughs> Get in there before Sky Sports does. Um, anyway, um, it's my birthday. Uh, it's literally my birthday. Happy birthday! Today. Thank you very much. Um, and uh, as is the annual tradition of shot reverse shot, I get to talk about whatever the hell I want. So, uh, kind of drunk with the power of that, I'd like to us to consider uh, for the next hour, Ed, in explicit detail, um, the order in which we would do the Disney princesses. <laughs> sure. No. That's fine. I'm not really going to make us do that because that would be um, awful in uh, every sense. Um, but what I want to talk about is um, like just some things that maybe perhaps wouldn't make it into a full episode, like parties, Ed. I've always been obsessed with like movie parties, um, and mainly because they are always better in films than they are in real life. Mm-hmm. And it's like the opposite of like sport in films, which is always better in real life than it is in films. Um, why is that? I think it's just that because with anything in cinema, and certainly, yeah, I mean, when you see parties, they tend to be in genres that are geared towards something like reasonably exciting, so, you know, a comedy or a, or an action movie or, or whatever, or a drama. You really need to heighten everything. And so even though, like, I've been to a lot of parties, particularly when I was at uni, I went to a lot of parties which um involved people like riding mattresses downstairs and smashing shit up and uh causing a lot of collateral damage to uh to our own house which um 
in retrospect, was probably the lesson that we should have learned was to just kind of really wreck up strangers' houses, but not our own, because I spent a lot of hungover mornings trying to pick up the pieces of, of parties that we'd had. Um, even though you can have those sort of parties, they're not kind of the norm and they're things that are I think you kind of really have to work hard to try and make happen whereas uh, in the movies it would be really uh, tedious if you just had like these those normal parties where you have a bit of fun you have a nice bit of conversation but not really all that much is is kind of happening uh, and so it's just it it's more compelling for audiences to present kind of idealized parties unless the the point is like a party that goes drastically wrong or or ends up being just a complete flop because the people hosting it are kind of losers who can't get people to come around and that's kind of the gag at their expense Mm. i think maybe that's it like all the parties i've ever been to um have generally just been like four or five people sitting in a room kind of like uh, awkwardly uh taking turns to go in for like half a bowl of quavers um, mm-hmm. whilst kind of being deeply miserable about the state of their own lives rather than kind of like throngs of like gyrating models and, you know, kind of pumping soundtrack um, and kind of people doing like keg stands and stuff. Um, I wonder how much of this is down to like being British and how much worse things are in Britain. Uh, I think there's a partly that, um, like you're describing like a Ken Loach party, really. <laughs> Ain't no party like a Ken Loach party. Because <laughs> a Ken Loach party will leave you sad. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the uh, like, I think it, there, there is kind of uh, more of a pent-up demand for parties in American culture because in a lot of places you can't drink until you're 21, so there's that air of danger and uh, of it being illicit. Mm. So uh, if you're going to a party at, at a university and you're getting really, really drunk you're breaking the law and so therefore it's a lot more exciting whereas uh in britain you kind of do that when you're 16 or 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 you're kind of you're in your teens so you can still do that stuff but you also are still probably doing it in your parents house so you can't go too crazy and there's a little there's a kind of a nice release valve so by the time you get to uni and you're allowed to illegally drink uh you maybe don't go that crazy although having said that in my first year at uni, we really made a fucking mess of our halls of residence and smashed a lot of the lights and windows and doors and things. So maybe that doesn't work across the board. Uh, or maybe it was just that everyone in Ranmore Hall of Residence in university hated the place so much that they, they felt uh, a desire to kind of get drunk and smash it up. Mm. If everyone's ever wondering why university landlords are so kind of like unscrupulous or that the standard of halls of residence is quite low, it's because of monsters like Ed. Um, yeah. Because he's just fucking shit up left, right and centre. Yeah, me and the other members of G-Block at Ranmore represent. <laughs> G-Block. <laughs> uh, wait, why can you call yourselves G-Unit? That would have been... We did call perfect. ourselves G-Unit. I didn't want to say that. <laughs> Oh, you asshole. There's there's, <laughs> there's lots of very embarrassing things about my first year at uni and uh, us calling ourselves G-Unit is just one of many that I don't like to relive. Mm, right, okay. Well, my first my first year of uni, like the, the probably the last house party I had where I was like, hey, everyone, come to my house and invite your friends was my 19th birthday, which was 1999 which was uh, wow. uh, that's last century 
and um, it is. Uh, uh, yeah, it was a long time ago, and I don't remember anyone. I don't remember knowing many people who were there because it was early on in the uni calendar, so mm-hmm. a lot of people came who I didn't know. Um, but that was probably the nearest I got to like a film style um, party. I seem to remember for some reason wearing uh, a cricket helmet on my head, which was odd because I, I had no cricket helmet in the house. I don't know where that came from. Uh, <laughs> and there was a, there was a picture of me drinking archers through the like the grill of the helmet, um, and uh, no one seems to be able to explain in any reasonable detail um the set of circumstances that kind of contrived to get me into that situation and i still can't figure it out i don't know why i'd be wearing a cricket helmet i don't know why i'd be drinking arches arches what's that about do you know because we were you even born then Ed? i can't remember uh i was i was i was conscious i was a conscious being in 1999 uh yeah. i was mainly I mean, I was probably still reeling from my conflicted feelings about the Phantom Menace. So right. um, in my state of confusion, I could have like hopped a train up to Sheffield and given away one of my dad's cricket helmets. There's mm. always that possibility. Yeah. And to be fair, you just reminded me that the uh, the pain of the Phantom Menace was still pretty fresh. So that probably explains the archers. Um, <laughs> But yeah, anyway, I'm going to go talk a little bit more about films and uh, kind of being young. Um, I have told the story before on this podcast about how my grandma thought it would be a brilliant idea to buy me the film Robocop on video when I was 10 years old, which is, I mean, wow. we've, talked, we've talked about Robocop before. It's a great film. Um, it's, you know, like genuinely good, um, but not appropriate for a 10-year-old. Um mm. But, like, what I wanted to ask you about, Ed, is what films did you watch illicitly when you were young? What films did you see that would have got you into trouble? Because mine is um, a horror... Like, so, you know, my my friend Ian had, like, an older brother who, like... I think he probably had all the the video nasties. It was around, kind of, like, the late 80s, so he probably would have had all that shit. Mm -hmm. But he showed us a film called The Entity, which I think is controversial because a uh, character gets raped by a ghost, I think. Um, right. Which is kind of what happens in the original Ghostbusters, when Dan Aykroyd gets like a blow blowjob off like a ghost, which everyone forgets that bit. <laughs> um, but yeah, and I remember telling my mum that I'd seen it and she went absolutely fucking do-lally. Um, even though I'd only, I'd only really seen some of the film and I didn't even see the rape scene in question. But at that point, when my mum went mad, like I realised that, oh, there's a whole world of films I shouldn't be seeing. Um, and then kind of found myself watching things like, you know, Bruce Lee films, uh, you know, stuff with violence in, stuff with boobs in. You know, what kind of films, what was your first memories of seeing something illicit? I think the one that immediately leaps to mind was The Terminator. Right. Because I was quite young when I watched that. I think I was about 12 or 13 and I had seen, I had already seen Terminator Two because mm-hmm. I remember watching it on TV with my dad, and I think clearly it must have been like a not a, a kind of a, a safer version of it because I don't remember it being super violent. But like Terminator Two, uh, sands off a lot of the rough edges and not a huge amount of like uh, sexuality in it, and there's even the violence is is more blockbustery than. Mm-hmm the original film so i kind of thought oh that'll be fine so i remember renting 
Terminator or, or what maybe recording it off of TV late at night and watching it. And then obviously the violence in that is a lot kind of bloodier and rougher. There's a sex scene, which like for when you're 13 makes it feel very illicit, even though it's like such a like mid eighties soft focus sex scene. But like, it's one that I, that it had that air of kind of, uh, of danger to it when I, when I watched it, which is, is weird. Cause I do think, I feel like now that that's a reasonably tame movie by modern standards in kind of pretty much all regards. Although, uh, Arnie kind of peeling off bits of his face after, uh, when he's in that hotel room or ripping off the the flesh from his arm is pretty gnarly. Mm. But that's easily a film that would be reclassified as a 15 release now, right? Yeah, I would think so. Um, and Terminator 2 would probably cut out some of the potty language and a couple of shorten a couple of shots and be a 12A. Pretty easily, yeah. I mean, that's one that I could, I, I don't think I would have too many compunctions about showing to teenagers. This, that's interesting you should say that because this is my next question. Um, and this kind of leads on a little bit from the conversation we had last week about uh, educating uh, maybe young people uh, about films and stuff. You and I, um, we're kind of, uh, well, I'm semi-intelligent. I believe you to be intelligent uh, kind of guys. We're, we're very liberal. You're supposed to say no, Matt, you're intelligent. <laughs> anyway, we're kind of liberal guys. We, I think that like... Um, uh, were we to uh, raise uh, like children, if we, me and you were to adopt kids, Ed, right? Let's just put ourselves mm-hmm. in this kind of Eric and Ernie situation where we're living <laughs> together, um, you know, and uh, we're kind of we've got adopted kids, and it's all cool, you know. We're kind of liberal, like living the liberal fantasy. At what point do we introduce our kids to like violent films? And I'm like, that sounds awful. Like you know, you're eight, you're gonna watch, you know fucking some grindhouse um driller killer yeah uh it's time <laughs> merry christmas um <laughs> but like at what point do you introduce a kid to to kind of adult themes i guess is what i'm trying to say because like when i grew up and i was like i remember watching halloween when i was maybe like 14 or 15 mm-hmm. and my dad came, came in while i was watching and he was like this is just all this is just all horrible like you know tawdry violence the violence is just in there to shock and it's disgusting and like you know he wasn't being puritanical but i don't think he kind of got what was going on in the film halloween um and to be fair at that age i don't think i did either um and i was kind of i liked it because it was violent (laughs) do you know what i mean but at what point do you sit your kids down our kids said and say do you know what i mean this is art this is not just uh exploitative violence I think it would depend on the movies. Like, like I say, I probably wouldn't have too much problem showing James Cameron's films to like twelve. I would thirteen. <laughs> well, Avatar. Avatar. I'd have problem showing Avatar to to anyone of any mm. age. But no, like I I wouldn't have a problem like showing Aliens or uh, or Terminator or Terminator Two to like twelve thirteen year olds because they even though they're like. Uh, 18 or 15 rated movies i feel like they take place in such a extreme science fiction context that there's a distancing to it certainly in aliens like Mm. the violence in aliens is aimed either at creatures that don't exist or like it's those creatures hurting people in ways that uh, aren't realistic Mm. so i wouldn't have too much of a problem with that 
I think I would probably have I'd have more compunctions like showing like the vanishing to like a twelve year old. <laughs> even though that movie is I think it's PG. Like I don't think that has a very high rating at all, but it's the sort of movie that I would not want to show to anyone like under the age of eighteen because it would fill them with such a deep existential dread. Um but like I think uh, at violence within a fantasy context I wouldn't be too fussed about showing them, but I probably would have mixed feelings about showing like an excessively violent action movie or a horror movie something that seems that takes place more or less within the real world Mm, yeah it's interesting isn't it that like because i had a situation the other day i said the other day it was like last year when i was babysitting some kids and like i looked at their kind of dvd collection and there was some pretty violent stuff in there and i was kind of like dude, you're like nine. How are you allowed to watch all this? And he was like, well, my dad doesn't mind as long as there's no bad language in it. I was like, oh, that seems to be a very strange kind of, you know, kind of outlook to have, I guess. I mean, our kids aren't going to be raised like that, Ed. I'll tell you that now. <laughs> um, but yeah, that, yeah, I mean, censorship for children is, I don't know, just uh, there's something strange about it. And I, I don't really know what the right or wrong answer is. Yeah, I guess you just have to go by intuition and how much you think the kids can handle. Uh, so you're saying we I mean, make it an, an, in, never... an endurance test and see how much they yeah. can handle. <laughs> yeah, we're going to kind of Ludovico technique it <laughs> and just kind of like strap them to a chair and make them watch different levels of intensity and then see how, how they deal with it. Mm. Um, yeah, I think I think I probably would have more problems with like excessively bad language. Like I didn't... Uh, I probably wouldn't show in the loop to like a 12 year old. <laughs> no. Funny though it is. <laughs> I think that would teach them some language that would lead to, you'd have to keep pausing it to explain what exactly all of the swearing means. Mm. Uh, and that would just disrupt the energy and kind of kill the jokes. So that'd be the main compunction about it is that if you have to explain the language, you're just interrupting the viewing experience. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I think you and I don't mean this raising our kids is going to work out. Um, <laughs> we might have to uh, might have to go our separate ways. Um, oh no! Well, there you go. Our, hypo- our hypothetical kids um, have been taken away by hypothetical social services because we made them watch Serbian film, uh, kind of <laughs> on, on loop. Yeah, that was like an interesting little side point. I kind of wondered, kind of how you felt about that because I was I was kind of thinking about it because I'm I've kind of moved house recently and kind of living with family and there's two young kids here and like. Uh, they're kind of still very much into like Disney and kind of films and stuff. And I was like, well, when did I first watch like a film that's for grown ups? Hmm. But yeah, it was probably Robocop, <laughs> age 10. Um, and yeah, uh, whilst the uh, political satire uh, was lost on me, a man was shot in the penis. That uh, the, the calling it a, a kind of a film for adults just reminded me of one of my favorite. Uh, visual gags from The Simpsons, which is when Ho- when Bart goes to a video store and then he goes into the adult film section and then when he goes there, it's like the categories are like Merchant Ivory, Unfunny Woody Allen, Henry Jaglum movies. <laughs> uh, and I just kind of made me wonder what would be like the first film I can remember watching that would qualify under that, like an adult film. And it probably would be like a Woody Allen, like, Annie Hall or something. Something where I watched that I thought, oh, this means I'm sophisticated. Mm. Uh, I'm not just watching uh, kind of violent sci-fi movies. 
Uh, and I think it probably would be something like that, or, or Schindler's List, or something. Mm. Mine was definitely so, um, definitely Glengarry Glen Ross. Um, oh yeah, that we've, we've kind one. of spoken about before. But like that was uh, I'd actually taped uh, taped a horror film late at night, and it kept running. And yeah, it taped Glengarry Glen Ross, and I watched it, and I was like, okay, I watched this, and then I kind of got hooked in it, and you know, no one got shot, no one. I mean, that did have some very inappropriate language in it. But yeah, no one got shot. No one was uh, kind of eaten by aliens. Uh, there's not really any action in it, full stop. But uh, I found it uh, very compelling. And uh, here we are, uh, kind of 25 years later, talking about films, which is uh, perhaps uh, that was that led me down the garden path uh, that, that led us here. Yeah, you just watch that and think, oh, this this mammoth guy, he seems to know what he's doing. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if he's written anything else. <laughs> yeah, we'll check it out. And then I realised that obviously I'd watched The Untouchables a lot, which he also wrote. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, that also had some very uh, foul language in it. And and lots of bloody violence. I haven't seen that film in ages. Do you reckon that's still any good? Uh, I caught like an hour or so of it like uh, on TV a couple of years ago and I was surprised by how compelling it was. Mm. Mainly in like... Less so in the script, which like once you've once you've kind of delved into a lot of mama as like I did a few years ago when you've watched like Homicide and things like that, uh, or uh, House of House of Cards was that his one? House of Games. House of called. Games. Yeah. I was like, wait, House of Frasier. Lies. House of Frasier. <laughs> yeah, House of Games. Once you've once you've kind of watched a bunch of his work and you kind of understand what his rhythms are. Mm. then that's not really his best work it it does feel a little boilerplate but like his uh like uh, uh de palma's uh technique in telling that story is uh really amazing to watch like there's a scene where um what like uh, kevin costner and sean connery and a bunch of other people are all kind of sitting around a table talking and the camera just rotates around the table as they're having this conversation in a single unbroken shot and just the choreography of it. So like making sure that the characters start talking as the like gap appears between the different heads as it's going around, like creating shots just because of how others characters heads block them off and things like that. Uh, It's just like an exceptionally well orchestrated bit of camera work and, uh, if it's if the film's good, and I do think it's it's pretty good, it's more because of how amazingly it's directed from someone who wasn't exactly a commercial titan uh, when he made it. Mm. And it's I don't know how true it is, but the word on the street is that the the famous uh, shootout, which happens in uh, is it like Penn Station or is it Grand Central Station, one of those New York stations? Yeah, um, the uh, kind of sequence that rips off the Odessa Step sequence from the Battleship Potemkin. Um, which is, you know, I mean, that's bl- pretty bloody pretentious to stick into a mainstream Hollywood action film. Mm. Um, but yeah, um, I heard the word on the street is is that they had a huge finale, which was like a car chase and mm. uh, a big shootout that got uh, stripped back very late for budget reasons. And um, De Palma was like, "Get me a location. Give me this. What locations have we got? We've got the station, right? Get me a pram." And I'll just prep this. He prepped it in like a day or something, and then on the on like just kind of called called audibles on the fly, and just pretty much made that sequence up on the spot. Which is, if you watch it and how immaculately constructed it seems, um, is pretty amazing. 
yeah, I heard the same story. And when I, as soon as I heard it, I had to like look up the sequence on YouTube and uh, if it's true and like, I see no reason why it wouldn't be, uh, then that's just an amazing bit of, uh, of cinematic improv to kind of conjure up this really indelible, really uh, difficult sequence kind of from whole cloth. Mm, yeah. yeah. Um, it just reminds me of, we talked about it before the the video that circulated um regarding how stressful the hobbit was for peter jackson and mm. perhaps investigating some of the reasons as to why it turned out to be such a shit shower and then the, the video of him just sat on set trying to figure out what's going on um with all these kind of moving pieces and just looking like a broken man whereas the palmer was probably just cool let's just bang it out and you know that's the end result yeah, you kind of wonder if it's somehow less stressful to have no money. Because <laughs> mm, yeah. if you have all of this money and all of this kind of, all of these uh, people able to realise your vision, then that can probably be a little paralysing. Mm. I'm pretty sure there's a, a saying about it, something like necessity is the mother of invention. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, and, and if, if you're Brian De Palma and they say you have no money to do your thing, it's like, well, we'll just do this and hope it works. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I would like to talk a little bit about, I, I was thinking about what we could talk about and I thought, well, what can I talk about based around my favourite films? And I thought, well, what are my favourite films? And then I realised that, uh, as always, um, I don't have a favourite film, but like the same few keep cropping up and that I can't seem to uh, decide on one in particular. But um, the one one of the ones that always, always up there is uh, Midnight Run. Um, and mm. I kind of kept thinking, why do I like Midnight Run so much? And uh, the reason I like Midnight Run so much is probably chemistry. That's probably the biggest reason why I enjoy that film. The chemistry between um, Robert De Niro's uh, character and uh, between Charles Grodin's character. Not two actors you would think to put together and not two characters you would think to put together and that is because uh, Midnight Run is the classic mismatched buddy comedy. Uh, and it got me thinking, who are your favourite mismatched buddies well the one that comes to mind straight away are um uh woody and buzz from toy story mm, yeah, yeah uh which is certainly i think it, it's probably the buddy movie that i have seen the most times because <laughs> uh i watched that a bunch of times at the cinema lots of times on video and dvd and just you know when it's on tv but uh their chemistry the chemistry between tim allen and tom hanks is so indelible and such a key to making that film and the subsequent films work the obliviousness of buzz uh believing that he is a real spaceman and the growing frustration of uh, of woody uh, over that situation is uh, so wonderfully played by everyone involved uh, and is such a great engine for the comedy, but also the uh, genuine animosity that grows between the characters as the story goes along. Uh, and uh, the 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 fact that both of those characters go on their own separate arcs within the story, I think, is is kind of key to the to any good buddy movie. Like it's not um, it's not something like Due Date with uh, uh, Zach Galifianakis and Robert Downey Jr. where one character remains more or less unchanged. Mm. Uh, it's nice that both characters get to go on something of a journey. Although, having said that, playing trains and automobiles, the two characters, only really Steve Martin's character changes over the course of that movie. But 
John Candy's just so wonderfully charming that uh, you don't care so much that his character, and also his character starts from such a kind of a, a low place that uh, you don't mind so much that he doesn't change. Mm. Um, and the thing about Woody and Buzz is, is the whole first film is about the tension of those two becoming friends mm-hmm. um, and getting Buzz needs to learn that he is a toy and not Buzz Lightyear. Whereas in the second film, it's well established that he's, you know, a toy and he's, you know, the, the Buzz we left uh, the first film with. But in both Toy Story 2 and 3, they bring it back that he doesn't remember those things again. Like they bring another buzz into it and they bring the Spanish buzz into three, but it never mm-hmm. feels like it's forced just to play the, the, the first gag again. Yeah. Um, which is really good. And like, th- that's one of the most amazing things about Toy Story. And this is a story I meant to tell uh, like a couple of weeks ago, actually. Um, but uh, I was uh, washing up in my flat and Toy Story 3 was on and the end of the film was playing and it made me cry just by hearing it mm, yeah um, that film is astonishingly powerful mm-hmm. um but yeah and, and that's all you know huge testament is that is, is is down to that central relationship yeah and you cast two actors who are just so perfect for those roles uh and weirdly that tim allen never really found a role that was as good at using his skills uh, which is quite why it's kind of quite nice that they've found ways to keep bringing him back for it, because yeah, nothing else he's ever done has really had that comedic or emotional resonance to it. Mm. On a side point, whilst we're talking about Toy Story, um, Toy Story Four is something that is 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 happening. Um, mm. Whilst Toy Story Two and Three were kind of sequels that no one really ordered from the start, but turned out to be pretty goddamn great. Toy Story 4, um, I kind of don't have much hope for, and I really kind of wish they weren't doing it. Yeah, I'm kind of of the same uh, the same mind, although, like, obviously, you can't judge until you've seen the movie, and the same thing could have been said of 3, which kind of had such inauspicious beginnings in that it started out as a direct-to-DVD sequel that was going to be churned out if the Disney-Pixar deal fell through. Mm-hmm. Um, but they ended up creating a masterpiece but uh, and i do feel like that's in in comparison to like the cars franchise to go back to that the fact that there's a third cars coming out which is a franchise that feels like it exists because it's very commercially lucrative um toy story is so central to the pixar story obviously it was their first big hit is something that's kind of been their signature characters in as much as like um, uh, Mickey Mouse is central to Disney that they would try their hardest to make it as good as possible. Mm-hmm. And you would hope that they wouldn't go back to it unless they had a compelling reason to do so. Um, but I do. I do. I also wonder if like my skepticism about it is just because there's some ingrained cultural thing that makes you think that, trilogies are the natural length for for kind of film series Mm. like because that seems to be how the the limits that like creative teams seem to be able to make good movies and anything you go beyond that except for like the seven up movies i guess um then you start to like see them running out of ideas uh and so like there's just something inherently 
culturally sleazy about a film being Toy Story 4 as opposed to 3, which feels like such a nice round way of kind of finishing off the story. Mm. Well, you know, maybe perceptions have changed. I mean, the Fast and the Furious films didn't really hit their stride until part five. That's true. So, yeah, so maybe maybe we just have to wait until Toy Story 5 for it to really kick it up a notch. Yeah, yeah, because they've just been coasting up until this <laughs> point. On Back on the subject of great uh, kind of mismatched uh, buddy pairings, I always like the idea of when you put two people together that they uh, you've got no idea why they're friends but also mm. you can't see them existing separately. And an example of that I can think of is um, the dude and Walter from um, The Big Lebowski. I have no idea yep. why those two are friends um, beyond the fact that they bowl together. Um, mm-hmm. But what, quite how they rely on each other so much is is a mystery. Yeah, and their, their relationship is so in contrast to uh, Woody and Buzz who are enemies and then become kind of like firm friends. They are so volatile. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's amazing that they can kind of cohere long enough to actually have a friendship, uh, especially when you throw in Donnie there. Mm. as just kind of like the third wheel who's there kind of throwing in uh, Beatles lyrics. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I um, I still can't work out who my favourite pairing from um, Kirby Enthusiasm is because every time mm-hmm. I watch it, it's, it, it swings from being uh, Larry and Susie Mm-hmm. Um, that's a great who one. aren't uh, uh larry and leon <laughs> which is <laughs> which is kind of even better because when when they introduced the whole storyline with the blacks yeah um i thought well this is this is three episodes tops mm-hmm. and then this is getting tiresome and you know they did write that part of, they kind of wrote that part of a storyline to a close but leon hung around and he is part of what makes the show incredibly funny yeah and and also like there are there are certain characters where and this happens in all of tv where they're so huge and they make such a big impact that uh unless i look it up on imdb i would grossly over exaggerate how many episodes they're in so Mm -hmm. like i think leon he's probably in like what 10 episodes of kirby enthusiasm but if you asked me like to estimate how many he's in i would probably say oh he's in like half of them because <laughs> he's just such a great presence and he's so uh enlivened the show every time he was on it that he feels like he must have been part of the furniture for the kind of the entire run in some small way or another mm, yeah i think a lot of what made me think about this as well is uh reading about the new Thor film mm-hmm. that uh, Taika Waititi is is making Thor Ragnarok and and his part of his uh, inspiration is Midnight Run. Yeah, and the idea that that a, a kind of mismatched buddy comedy could, you know, be with the buddies being the Hulk and Thor, two of the least workable <laughs> Marvel characters. Uh, you know, a guy who, who kind of burns through his clothes and gets angry and turns green and smashes things, and a fucking Norse god <laughs> um, who's got a really heavy hammer. And I mean, you know, to be fair, they the Marvel guys have done a great job of making Thor a character that you uh, enjoy watching because I didn't think they'd be able to pull that off. And yeah, especially with the humour and stuff. Um, so I, I'm actually pretty hopeful for that. And I think that, would pro- that could be quite a lot of fun. Yeah, and and Taika Waititi has already made like a great buddy movie and Hunt for the Wilder People, 
which is such a lovely version of that kind of storytelling, but but making it about a child hanging out with his adopted dad who hates him <laughs> uh, and turning it into kind of like a big action comedy of them being stalked through the woods by government authorities. Uh, and I think if he can bring the same kind of wit and energy to something as potentially ungainly as a Thor movie uh, is very exciting. Uh, and because he's such an odd, eccentric vision uh, and the character of Thor is inherently odd and weird, uh, that there's a lot of uh, potential there for it to actually be really, really fun. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Here's hoping so. I think that's that, that's your lot, everyone, for my special birthday episode. I have uh, satisfied all my queries that I had leading into this week. Um, I am now fully uh, clued up on everything that I wanted to know um, and require no further knowledge. Um <laughs> What are we going to do for recommends this week? What have you got, Ed? Uh, well, I'm uh, kind of deep into uh, screener season uh, because we've got the uh, Online Film Critics Society awards at the end of the year. So I've been kind of catching up on movies that I've uh, been wanting to see and which uh, people have, have been very kind to uh, send me. Uh, and uh, I've watched a couple of really good documentaries recently. Uh, I'm going to recommend one called Kate Plays Christine which uh, I believe is uh, fairly widely available in the US, at least. I think you can can rent it on iTunes and things. Uh, It's by Robert Greene, who directed a movie called Actress uh, a year ago, which was kind of an examination of the life of a actress who uh, has kind of been out of the industry for a while and about, you know, the the toll that that takes of giving up a career in order to kind of raise a family and things like that. And this takes a similar approach in that it's a movie about a young actress preparing to play uh, Christine Chubbuck, who is a uh, who was a Florida uh, newswoman who, in 1974, uh, shot herself in the middle of a live uh, broadcast. Uh, and what's interesting about the film is is it's kind of a, a documentary about the process of preparing for a role. So you watch uh, this young actress called uh, Kate Lynn Shiel, I believe is her name, who. Uh, goes through the motions of preparing for a role. Like she researches the life of Christine Chubbuck. She learns about guns. She learns about suicide. She kind of looks into the backstory of what Sarasota, Florida was like in the 1970s and all this sort of stuff. And they talk to her about her process, what it feels like to kind of be inhabiting a real person and things like that. But she's preparing for a movie that doesn't actually exist. Uh, There's no... Uh, which is ironic because there is actually a movie about Christine Chubbuck starring Rachel, Rebecca Hall that is uh, also coming out this year uh, called Christine. And it's just it's just really fascinating watching this kind of weird metatextual uh, approach to the story where this, this woman is preparing for a role that she is technically playing because they are filming the rehearsals and things, but for a project that doesn't actually exist. Uh, so it, it kind of, in some ways, is purer in its examination of her process and what acting actually is. Uh, and it's a really fascinating movie. A lot of people have a problem with the final scene. I don't think that it ends on a particularly strong note. But um, I think for anyone who's interesting in acting as a craft and as some, uh, uh, it's it's really it's a really fascinating piece of work. Cool, man. I will uh, keep an eye out for that. 
Uh, I'm going to recommend a film that I saw this week, which uh, is called Northern Soul. It is a British film from, I think, 2015, maybe earlier. Uh, 2014, it says here, um, directed by Elaine Constantine, and it is... Um, a story of a couple of young lads from a dead-end northern Lancashire town um, who uh, kind of find themselves caught up in the northern soul boom in the in the 1970s when uh, perhaps there wasn't an awful lot for young people uh, going on in kind of 70s Britain. Uh, but this kind of became their way out. The, the story of northern soul, the music, not the film, uh, although they are kind of completely entwined, is that, you know, uh, rare soul records um, would be, you know, kind of played in clubs and after a while it started to catch on and, you know, the competition and the genre of Northern Soul became who could play the rarest stuff and uh, it became obsessive and um, kind of gave birth to this kind of amazing scene which had its own dancing, its own aesthetic, its own uh, culture, um, which kind of pervades today. Um, there are still kind of Northern Soul nights kind of around Northern Britain you can go to. I've been to one. Don't put your bag on the floor if you're a lady, because in Northern Soul Circles, that means you'll go home with anyone. Uh, just <laughs> a word to the wise. Um, but yeah, Northern Soul tells a story of two friends, uh, or two guys who are kind of uh, solitary figures, I guess. Uh, one of them are kind of a, a kind of a loser who can't really connect to people, um, but he's kind of very intelligent, doesn't really have any friends. And then another guy, kind of an older kid, who um, has an Northern Soul collection and puts a record on at the youth club and they kind of bond over this this love of, of music and then, you know, it goes from there. They kind of spiral into uh, heavy drug use. Amphetamines were pretty rife in the Northern Soul scene, um, but the whole uh, film and the story is soundtracked by the, you know, the most incredible selection of Northern Soul records, um, a pristine recreation of the time. Um, and manages to achieve the feat of making me nostalgic for a scene that I could have never been a part of because I wasn't born, which is, you know, uh, a pretty kind of uh, decent feat to pull off. Um, I'm, the film is structurally not particularly great because, you know, if you've seen a film before in which uh, two friends get along and it goes really well and they've got grand plans and they fall apart and then, you know, they might have to kind of try and reconcile before the end then none of the things in this film will be a surprise to you. Um, but what is great about the film is the incredible feeling of warmth and uh, vibrancy that they bring out of the scene. And the music is just incredible. And I believe it's on all Netflixes. Um, it had a very, very short cinema release uh, a couple of years ago. Um, but uh, yeah, it made its mark and um, is you know pretty feel-good, even though it's set in essentially Blackburn in the 1970s, um, which is, you know, not somewhere you want to set a film. Um, so yeah, that's what I'm recommending this week, Northern Soul. Right, that's your lot uh, this week. Thanks as always for listening. If you've enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher or Player FM. And if you really enjoyed the show, why not leave us a little review? You can find us on Twitter at SRS underscore podcast and on Facebook too. We'll be back next week with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me.